Thank you for listening to this talk produced by the Art Gallery of South Australia. Hello, everyone. Welcome. Welcome to the Art Gallery of South Australia. Welcome to Tarnandi. My name is Lisa Slade, and I'm the Assistant Director here at the Gallery. We are, of course, on Ghana land. Aksamirna, Ghana, Yatanga, Yuandi, Natalia. You have you are in for a very special treat today. <laughs> we have a the Honourable John Mansfield AM as our guest presenter of our Tuesday lunchtime talk. Is anyone in the crowd new to our Tuesday lunchtime talk series? Just put up your hand. I make a joke about the fact that we can't afford research here at the Art Gallery of South Australia, so this is how I work out who the audience are. So anyone that's new, loud and proud, because we will couch, count your hands. Great. So about 10 new people to our lunchtime talk. Now, I'm going to just read briefly in introducing John from a bio that was put together quite recently for his honorary doctorate at the University of South Australia. We have in John Mansfield a passionate advocate for Aboriginal culture, for Aboriginal people, and also for art, as it happens. And John has had a long-standing relationship with this art gallery. I guess you could say that his two passions come together in this presentation today. His ongoing commitment to the art gallery and his ongoing commitment to law and specifically to native title. Now, John is described as a leading exemplar of native title law. He is, I'm just going to put my glasses on so I can actually see what I'm reading, excuse me. John was sworn in as a Justice of the Federal Court of Australia in 1996, served for 20 years. He's, the highlights of his career include landmark decisions in native title law. John's dedication to the field is absolutely exemplary. He has uh, practised in a way that has, I, I think, really radically altered our reception and our sense of responsibility to First Nations people. He was, and this is something new for me, he was the docket judge. It's a very interesting term, John, probably one that's very um, common parlance in law, but I'd never seen it before. He was the docket judge for the Northern Territory and for South Australia between 2003 and 2016. During this time, he heard a great number of native title claims and his specialist knowledge in the area led to his appointment as the Aboriginal Land Commissioner in 2011. Over this time, as you can imagine, and as I've said, he's developed a deep understanding of Aboriginal law and Aboriginal communities, including an understanding of how language resonates with ideas and subtleties about the connection between people and place. And it's that connection between people and place that I'm sure John will speak to today. This presentation came about because I was standing with John in this gallery probably about two months ago now, and John was very modestly, as he does, sharing very briefly his experience. And I said, John, please come and join us for a lunchtime talk. <laughs> so can I ask you to very enthusiastically welcome and thank John Mansfield. Thank you, Lisa, and thank you all for coming and giving me some of your time. There was a bit of upselling in that uh, presentation or introduction, and while I was happening, I was feeling a bit like Charlie Brown. Do you remember Charlie Brown, the cartoon character? He looked up to the heavens one day and said, God, why am I here? 
And the big voice came down from the end, why, where do you want to be? <laughs> so here I am and I'm going to tell you a little bit from my perspective about how we have recognised the Indigenous peoples of Australia, especially of the Northern Territory, because much of this ex exhibition is dealing with those people, especially the northeastern part of the Northern Territory, and just explain how the legal system, to a degree, has accommodated and then developed and strengthened their entitlement to speak for their country. I thought you might be interested in that. A little bit of history. I was going to start with a... I've handed out simply a map of the Northern Territory or the northern part of the Northern Territory and I'll talk about a few places in that as we go along just so that you can understand what, I'm, what, I'm, what areas I'm talking about. But those of you who have a little bit of age will remember or know that the Northern Territory when it was established by a British enactment became part of South Australia and until 1911 it was part of South Australia and we then surrendered it to the Commonwealth uh, because we couldn't afford it, basically. It was an unprofitable enterprise. So in 1911 it became under Commonwealth control and it remained under Commonwealth control until the late 1960s when the Commonwealth separately created the Northern Territory and gave it independence. It was a very important part of the independence reservation and that is the Commonwealth when it gave the Northern Territory independence preserved its rights over the Indigenous people to a significant extent and that's where I want to start. So we start with a remarkably beautiful picture that many of you will remember of Gough Whitlam when he came into power in 1972 and he part of his policy was to recognise Indigenous rights in land including in the Northern Territory. In the late 60s there had been a couple of quite significant developments. One of them was the Wave Hill walk-off. Many of you will have heard that. They were Aboriginal pastoral workers who were working on the Wave Hill station, a station owned by Vesties, a British company, who had a number of properties in the Northern Territory and the abattoir in the Northern Territory sitting over what is now Beautiful Beach. And because they weren't paid for many years and then were paid a pittance relative to the stockmen who were non-Aboriginal, they went on strike. It's called the Wave Hill Strike because it came from Wave Hill Station. It was led by a man called Vincent Lingiari. Started in 1967 and the strike remained for nearly seven years, six or seven years, when they walked off and stayed off and gradually gave momentum to the fact that these Aboriginal stockmen throughout the Northern Territory were simply not being recognised and paid in the same way as the white stockmen. Pretty appalling, really, when you think of it, especially from our present perspective. So they walked off and stayed off, and it caused some problems and generated some publicity. The same time, in the Gove Peninsula, which, as you'll see, is the very northeastern part of the Northern Territory, that little bit right at the top right-hand corner, where Yukala is and Mullenboy is. And a number of the paintings that are shown in this collection come from that area. Those people claimed in the Supreme Court of the Northern Territory to be able to um, be entitled to be recognised as the traditional owners of the land and have their rights recognised in law so that the mining company uh, now Rio Tinto, but previously a differently named company, 
would have to pay them for the rights to mine on their company, on their country, and that mine was started. The case was heard in the Northern Territory and in 1972, a judge of the Northern Territory, a South Australian based or originated judge, a judge called Justice Blackburn, decided that although the case was clearly made out, the law of Australia did not recognise Indigenous rights in country, full stop. So he simply said, I can't do anything about it even though I believe everything you tell me, and it was left like that. So those are two events that were evolving in the period up to the time of the Whitlam government, and Whitlam, when he came in, said he was going to recognise native title as best he could, or Indigenous rights, as best he could. And the best way he could do that, because the Commonwealth still preserved its rights over the Northern Territory in relation to that area, was to legislate. So after a Royal Commission, he passed, or he sought to pass in 1975, an act called the Aboriginal Land Rights Act of the Northern Territory. He was kicked out before it was passed. But to the great credit of the Fraser government, in particular the Attorney General of that time, a, a man called Robert Ellicott, who's still alive now, he's still, still living in Sydney, he took it up and they passed the Aboriginal Land Rights Act in 1976. The Fraser government passed, or not quite the same terms, but more or less the same terms. And so a large part of the Northern Territory then uh, became subject to the Land Rights Act. And they created a Land Rights Commissioner, which a position which I have now held for some eight years. And they created a system which provided only for unalienated Crown land or, Crown, or land which had been specifically already reserved as an Aboriginal reserve. So if there had been a pastoral lease, a house grant, a mining lease, any sort of exploration licence on any part of the Northern Territory, the Land Rights Act simply did not apply to it at all. But that left, as it happened, about half of the Northern Territory. And the Act said, if this land is Aboriginal reserve land or is unalienated Crown land, if you show us that you are the traditional owners and not a very big obstacle, and that there are some sacred areas within this land, we will get a land commissioner to report to us of that affair and then the land commissioner will recommend a grant of the land to you and subject to considering how it might affect white interests or a non-indigenous interest, they're not necessarily all white interests because there are a lot of Chinese and Macassans down in the Northern Territory, um, we will make a grant. So very soon after that enactment, uh, much of the Northern Territory, because it was Aboriginal land reserve, was given to the Aboriginals as a grant of land and it's scheduled in the Act and says this is Aboriginal land. Now if you look at the map and you'll see the large swathe of what we call Arnhem Land. I've often wondered why we keep calling it Arnhem Land. Do you know why it's called Arnhem Land? It's called Arnhem Land because in uh, 1600 and I'll get the, get the date right on my other piece of paper. Yes. Um, 1623, a Dutch captain 
for the Dutch East India Company came into the Gulf of Carpentaria on a ship called the Arnhem. And it was named the Arnhem after the town of Arnhem in the Netherlands. And he named it Arnhem Land, and that's how it stayed ever since 16, 1623. It's time we had made a change, isn't it? Anyway, a lot of the Aboriginal reserves were then given directly to the Aboriginal by way of grant, and those which are not already reserved, the Aboriginal communities could apply to the Land Commissioner for a recognition of their title, of their interest in the land, and if they established that they were traditional owners, the Aboriginal Land Commissioner would recommend the grant to the government, and the government would then have a, to the relevant minister, would have an inquiry to see who might be affected, and then balance things up and decide whether or not to make the grant. And as it happened, something like half of the Northern Territory under that system has been granted to Aboriginals absolutely. So anything that you see which is the sort of the pale pinky brown is subject to the Aboriginal Land Rights Act and has been granted. There have been a number of recommendations which have not been the subject of grants simply because they were too hard or because people thought there were too many interests or because the minister wasn't prepared to look at it hard, well enough. The present minister, Minister Wyatt, following a report to him last year, has decided to make another 15 grants of small parts of the land uh, that have been recommended as long as 15 or 20 years ago. So he conducted or had a conducted an inquiry la last year which looked at the so-called detriment to the other communities and has decided to make those grants. So there's all but one which is near the uh, north, near Darwin, the Charles Darwin National Park at there, which he isn't making a grant yet simply because to get it ready to make a grant will cost about 30 or 40 million in remediation because of the use that was made of it during the Second World War. And it's just, the money has just got to be found. So that's all happening. Along the way, of course, that's only half of the land in the Northern Territory because you can see the large parts which are green, pastoral interests, there's a lot of mining interests, you don't need to know the detail of it. But along the way, that land was simply left aside and the politics of Australia did not advance that process at all. And then Mr Marbo came along, and you all know about Marbo. He's a North Queenslander, actually an islander, not a Queenslander, as he would say, or would have said. Uh, but he, he brought a claim in the Supreme Court of the Northern Territory, and eventually that got to the High Court in two cases, one which challenged Queensland and Western Australia, challenged the power of the court to make a decision, and that was lost, and then it went to the High Court and on the merits, the High Court in 1992 made the famous Marbo decision that said that unlike the 1972 case of Justice Blackburn, Australian law recognises Indigenous interests in land. That was a declaration by the judges of the High Court, so it's the highest court of the land, and that led to a very flurried um, problem for the Commonwealth um, with the Keating government um, pushing hard and with a lot of lobbying and that led to the Native Title Act in 1993. So that covered the rest of Australia. And that was a compromise because unlike the Land Rights Act, 
we couldn't or couldn't contemplate, I suppose, as a community simply leaving Australia back, leaving it with the Indigenous Australians and everybody else leaving. That wasn't an option which was available. So it was a question of where the line was to be drawn and a political line was drawn. So for the rest of Australia, a political line was drawn which gave priority to existing granted interests by colonial and then Commonwealth and state governments. So although there was a great panic about saying we'll be driven off our land and we'll have to have no place to sell, no house to live in and so on, the Native Title Act said we can recognise the Indigenous owners of the land as the original owners, but we will not restore rights to them which will transgress existing rights granted under colonial or state and territory law. So in the cities, Sydney, Melbourne, Adelaide, Brisbane, Perth, where there'd been long grants for many, many decades, all of those grants simply take priority over the Indigenous rights. In Australia, in South Australia last year, not long, two, two years ago, the Ghana people were recognised as the traditional owners of the land that we're now on. And that was a court declaration recognising it. it not, the court doesn't say, we will give this back to you. It says, we recognise that from the time of um, white settlement or a non-Indigenous settlement, you were and remain the traditional owners of this land. The recognition is given, but the rights are very limited. And in the communities such as the Ghana, which are the Adelaide Plains, there just isn't much left when you take away from their traditional rights, apart from recognition, the things which our rights, um, granted under uh, local law, exist in country areas, in rural areas, in remote areas, it's more extensive. So over the last, um, since 1993, but more specifically since the early uh, 2000s, there have been lots and lots of cases where Indigenous peoples' rights have been recognised in land throughout Australia and depending upon the nature of the interests that otherwise exist, those Indigenous rights have also been recognised and given effect to. In northwest Australia, there are a number of areas where the Indigenous rights have become exclusive because there simply wasn't much development or there was no continuing development. In other areas where there have been pastoral leases, the High Court has said a pastoral lessee can enjoy the pastoral lease and the Indigenous people can enjoy their rights as well so that there are mutual and corresponding rights. Those decisions made in the early 2000s um, led to a lot more angst again, but that's all worked out. And the same with mining interests, that led to a great angst. Oh, we won't be able to mine, we won't be able to do this, we won't be able to do that. Now, as, as I've, because I've done a lot of these determinations, principally in South Australia and the Northern Territory, you find that the pastoralists and the miners come along to the, the recognition and say, isn't this fantastic? And they're using the Aboriginal people as part of their management teams, as their working teams, their consulting teams. They have pleasure in recognising the Indigenous special areas of special interest. So the whole community has changed quite dramatically. And you would probably now know that anywhere north of Port Augusta 
has been recognised in South Australia as indigenously owned land with the right subject to the other grants that have been made. And the process of the southern part of the state is partly completed as well. So all of that's happening. Along the way, Don Dunstan in 1978 made a grant of the APY lands in the northwestern part of South Australia, effectively um, emulating the South Australian the Australian Aboriginal Land Rights Act. So those processes have happened. There was a very big decision of the High Court in 2008 called Blue Mud Bay. Blue Mud Bay is just below the northwestern tip of the um, Northern Territory in that big area. You can see a big island there, that's Groot Island, but Blue Mud Bay is that space just to the left of that was very important because the, until that time it was always assumed that the grant of land interests under the Land Rights Act was to the high water mark. And those of you who know the Northern Territory a bit know that the high water mark and the low water mark and the tidal waters are pretty big, sometimes three or four kilometres, sometimes ten kilometres. And the tidal waters sometimes extend inland 20 or 30 or 40 kilometres. The Blue Mud Bay decision said that grants under the Land Right Act go to the low water mark and include all the tidal waters. So if you go to the map that I've handed to you and go to the other side, to the, the um, bottom left-hand corner, you'll see two big rivers, Fitzmaurice River, and the Victoria River. And you can see how far inland the tidal waters extend. The effect of the Blue Mud Bay decision is that all those tidal waters become Aboriginal. And in practical terms, it means that most of the barramundi fishing spawning areas in the Northern Territory are now recognised as owned and controlled by the Aboriginal communities. Very important. Nobody cared much about those claims, so as a land commissioner, I did a lot of what we called the beds and banks claims, so a little, the little between the high water mark and the low water mark, all in land uh, on the tidal rivers and on the beaches, and nobody had much bothered about them till after Blue Mud Bay, so they all sat there, about 20 or 30 of these claims. Um, I should have said, in 1997, a sunset clause was put into the Land Rights Act, so you had to make all your claims by that date. So these claims were all started in 1997 and then nobody worried about them for 20 or 30 years and suddenly they became very interesting. And that's what I'm now doing a bit of, is hearing those claims just to determine who the traditional owners are. And then when I report to the minister, I say, these people are the traditional owners, you should make a grant, these are the detriment claims. And I must say that the traditional owners, um, almost invariably, are pretty realistic about accommodating some of the detriments. The pastoralists suddenly can't take their cattle from the high water mark to the low water mark to get water in tidal times or when it's a bit of a dry area. The pastoralists can't go onto the low water area, and, but the tidal area 
or with the rivers and creeks, the bank beds and banks, to control the noxious weeds, all of those sort of standard pastoral management techniques. And the indigenous people through, in that case, the Northern Land Council, which is their collective representative body, have more or less said, we will allow the pastoralists to do what they have done forever at a peppercorn rental. So there's a lot of compromise happening. And then the pastoralists, because I had this experience last year, um, said, oh, but we're not only using this for pastoral purposes, we've got some great rivers and we're setting up camping grounds and we're charging people to come across our land and then they can go to the camping ground, we're charging them for petrol and we're letting them, charging them for putting their boats on the water and the we're making lots of money out of that. And the minister said, well, too bad, if you want to have those rights, you negotiate with the Indigenous people because I'm going to make those grants and then you can continue to do so but um, make, uh, you can make reparation or make deals with the Indigenous people and if they don't want you there, you won't be able to do it. So although they're accommodating sensible pastoral uses, they're not accommodating routinely, nor should they, um, those more active commercial interests. And surprisingly, and, and I think somewhat shamefully, the Northern Territory Government has said about all of these outstanding claims where there are beds and banks uh, extending considerably inland, it said, uh, oh, you mustn't make those grants. The detriment is too great. We lose control of our fishing management rights. We lose control of our tourism development potential. We lose control, it'll have a big effect on the economy of the Northern Territory, etc., etc. And it's almost as if they're settling in Australia for the first time as colonists and say, well, what? we've settled here, we want it all. You know, if you think about it, it's an appallingly ungracious, uh, as a neutral sort of word, attitude to have taken. But they've taken that and the Commonwealth fortunately preserved its rights in relation to those matters, so they have to live with it. And in fact, it's not strictly correct because even though the indigenous rights take all, take control of all of this area, um, they still have to abide by the law of the land in other respects. So if there are fishing quotas, they will have to accommodate those. If there are special rules for all how you manage um, country, they'll accommodate that because they have to. So it's not quite as dramatic as one thinks. And the other thing, of course, it's pretty easy to make the comment that a large area of the Northern Territory economy, the tourism area, is to do with Indigenous Australians. So if the Indigenous Australians are doing these activities, so what? It's a very good thing. But so that the poor... <laughs> I'm sure you don't follow Northern Territory politics like I do, but the Minister of Aboriginal Affairs up there has been sort of fighting like punching a wall, <laughs> breaking his fists open, and the majority in that the government has simply been unsympathetic. So that's, that's a very significant step that happened. A couple of other things. How are we going for time? A couple of five minutes, five. A couple of other things. One of the things which native title claimants did not much pursue for a long time because establishing native title is much harder than showing that you're a traditional owner under the Land Rights Act. To show native title, the definition is that you have to show that at the time of uh, settlement, 
in South Australia, that's 1836, or for practical purposes at the time of first white exposure when people were moving north, you were the people who occupied that land as a community and you have a continuity which you can trace back through your ancestors and you have continued to practice your traditional laws and customs on that land up to now. So it's quite a hard test. And you would have, as you would expect, the courts have said, well, you've got to read that sensibly so that if previously you caught fish by spearing and now you know how to make a net better than you did out of, of some sort of grasses before, that's still traditional. It's just you're using modern techniques in a traditional way. So it hasn't proved too much of an obstacle, but it's a much harder thing to prove than, than simply say, I'm now the traditional owner because I've been here for quite a long time and everyone recognises me, which is the land rights test. Anyway, they, they've done that and they, they then had to prove what those traditional rights and interests were. And it wasn't until a decision in 2016 in Borolula, which is also, so I can focus on it, uh, towards the bottom part of the Gulf of Carpentaria, if you can see the Sir Ed Edward Palu Islands, still so called, Borolula is down there and you can see some green land and you can see some land rights land. The land rights land wasn't a problem but because there was a township of Borolula established a long time ago, that could not be granted under the Land Rights Act because it was not unalienated. You declare a township, it becomes alienated land. So that had to come under the Land Rights Act. And the Aboriginal community there said, we traded. Not only were our traditional rights, hunting, gathering, foraging, living, you know, all the things which routinely one would expect, they included trading. And despite the Land Rights Act having, it's the Native Title Act, having been around for a good two plus decades, there had never been decision about that. If you go around to one of the paintings there, uh, in the middle of, middle of the wall just in the next room, Narawapu Wankungura, Mara, I think, is a painting of him, and he, he was, he's an old man, he was born according to the form in 1952, so it was not a recent young man, he's almost as old as me. Um, oh, but he, he has a painting of fishing and trading and sailing boats and because the Macassans and the Malays were coming into the Gulf of Carpentaria for many, many, many decades. And that right, and they'd been trading, particularly um, the Trepang, which is now a very valuable and very carefully regulated fishing resource. So they were doing that for many, many, many decades and he's part of that process and the painting is there to show it. But that was not until 2016 that it was decided by our court that the rights, traditional rights and interests of the Indigenous Australians, at least on the coast, included trading. And the Northern Territory fought that claim, they lost it, they did not appeal and it is now just spreading around the whole of Australia as a native title, traditional right and interest, because it was. So it's a very slow evolution. And what you've got with this exhibition is people who know they've been there forever, 
we've been very slow in various ways in recognising that and giving them as much as an entitlement as the law permits. Uh, in the case of land rights, it's a very significant entitlement now for the reasons I've explained and it's a very valuable entitlement and now in the Northern Territory is a very hard fought entitlement but fortunately with a minister in Canberra who is empathetic and understanding and positive. So all of the old claims which have been sitting for 20 or 30 years with, without somebody saying what do I do about it, I said I know what I'm going to do about it, here it is. Um, the future looks good, native title claims on the other hand are still challenging and struggling but they are getting better. And I think our understanding of the relationship of the, our Indigenous Australians as depicted in this fantastic exhibition, it's just mind-bogglingly good, as just becoming stronger and more empathetic and more sympathetic. Thank you for listening. I'm happy to answer any questions if you want me to. question is how, how in, at least in relation to Native Title Act claims, how can you prove the connection? The answer is anthropology, linguists, archaeologists, uh, art. There is actually quite a lot of evidence from people who can just describe all those activities. The anthropologists were around Australia from the late 1800s. Um, Trevor, there's some quite well-known anthropologists who are looking at preliminary work and in South Australia um, and, uh, and interna internationally, but na in the Northern Territory. The question is about the return of Aboriginal remains and artefacts which have been taken overseas. That's not something that I've had an experience of directly in my judicial work, but I know that that is happening. There was one down at Kingston um, where they were burying some, some men who were returned about uh, three months ago, just before Christmas, I think. And the South Australian Museum has a huge storage of Aboriginal remains, which they're endeavouring to identify the source of the remains and then return them to the community so they can be properly buried. Um, and it's happening reasonably actively I think but uh, yeah the problem proof is I mean <laughs> the problem of proof of connection is re realistically you look at what is available so that you start with just the local observations you know a lot of people who went into remote areas as pastoralists kept diaries so any primary material like that is a good start and then the anthropologist gives you the structure within which those sort of diaries are properly understood and you take newspapers with a pinch of salt because they're giving a white perspective of what's happening and sometimes quite a wrong perspective. So there's all of that developing knowledge that... Uh, yeah. Well... I haven't heard any evidence, I haven't heard of anyone having evidence that needed to go that far. 
Mostly the claims that have failed have been claims where the connection was broken, so that there's sort of clear anthropology up to a certain time, or then because of the policies of the 1930s and 1940s, when we had removal of children, no use of language, no teaching of stories and so on. But one of the things which is very noticeable to me, because I was doing this for about 20 years, is the slow loss of knowledge. So that the sort of evidence that I heard in, in the early 2000s of the graphic connection with country and the graphic stories and the graphic ceremonies that were taking place, that evidence is now being lost because um, the next generation don't know as much as the past generation or they didn't learn it or they didn't get it passed on. And now sometimes, you know, they're desperate to find it out. But, and then progressively, I suppose, as Aboriginal communities split into, like all of our children, they're looking for work, they're looking for opportunities. A lot of the communities are spread more widely. They just don't have as much knowledge. But you can, if you look at the decisions, you'll find that all of those problems are pretty sympathetically understood. Just a kind of question, comment, which is, it seems to me, and I'm interested in your perspective, that Jungo have had a very long understanding of the political potency of art in as witness, as witness to a connection to country. The Bark petition was created in 1963 to go up to the federal government. It was a Bark painting which had has text in the centre surrounded by paintings, not dissimilar in many ways to the paintings that you see in the next space. And that painting was made by the direct relatives of all of the artists in this exhibition. So it strikes me that Jung will have long understood the political potency, the evidence of these works, the evidence, evidential status of these works in terms of that connection to country. I'm curious about how often art comes up, art and anthropology, if you like, in the discussions that you've had. Uh, the answer is very often, because the anthropologists use it. I mean, as a, I'm, I'm really, as a judge, you decide on evidence, but you have to understand evidence. And if I see a bark painting or a, a cave painting, um, it doesn't convey to me without some expert, as you were talking about, telling me what it actually means, either a, an art expert or an anthropologist or a lot of those sort of areas cross over. I, I had, uh, and, and I mean, one of the leading uh, anthropologists was a guy called Tanner, Stanner rather, um, in the 1930s, 1940s. He, he, uh, learnt a lot and he explained a lot of this in a way that now gives a legacy to the next generations of anthropologists. And I actually, in the Fitzmaurice River case, which was in the southwestern corner, a northwestern part of uh, the Northern Territory, we actually went and looked at some paintings last year. It was very remote and it was the top of a hill, and then you had to zigzag down the, the strata of the hill about halfway down to this cave. And we went with about 12 or 14 people, 10 of whom were Aboriginals from the area, including one old man. And he showed us this cave. None of the Aboriginals that came with him, who were people of 50 and 40, 50, 60 years old, had ever been there or had ever seen it. They knew about it, they'd never seen it. And you went into this cave and we had a couple of anthropologists and it was probably oh, as big as that space down to the wall there, this magnificent cave, full of paintings. 
Nobody had ever seen them before, I'm sure. No white man had ever seen them before, and only, you know, no, not too many living Aboriginals. And this old bloke showed it to his people for the first time. And it was just extraordinary. And the anthropologists who were with us said, oh, we'll just stay for a week. You know? <laughs> it was just so exciting. Um, and had some remarkable figures, including the figures from WA, the Bradshaw figures. There was a Bradshaw figure there, which I'd never heard of being that far east before. Um, so it was just extraordinary. <laughs> I'm not getting into that debate. <laughs> but it was just fantastic. But the, the paintings have always been part of the story of traditional law and custom. It's the way of recording your law and custom to a degree. And if you think about it, um, it's also a way of showing that you were trading because some of those paintings uh, show some ships, ship figures and things like that. So it's a very important part of the story. Um, I found an uh, unexpected point of convergence between law and art when you made the point about fishing being based on traditional practices and innovated into contemporary but still acknowledged as traditional. That's what we often talk about when we're talking about this exhibition. We talk about the fact that it is both traditional and contemporary and that has a lot of white fellas scratching their head. But I think that's a, you know, the fact that that is a kind of precedent in law and in art is uh, a wonderful shared sense of purpose and clarity and a way of rethinking. So, John, that was just so illuminating. Thank you. You have been so generous with your time. It's so wonderful, isn't it, to kind of step out of the way we normally approach these talks on a Tuesday, which are often very much art expert focused, to hear of your experience, deep knowledge and transformative work that you've done. Thank you so, so much. Join me in thanking John Mansfield. A final plug, join us on Sunday. I mean, join us every day, but join us on Sunday because we have commenced our Sunday sessions. And that's when, for the whole month of January, every Sunday, we have film screenings, live music here at the gallery. And, of course, every day we have guided tours and Tuesdays, our special talks. Thank you so much. Enjoy the rest of your day.